Now you may recall that this book of the Bible was originally a letter. It was written by the Apostle Paul while he was in jail. It was his habit to write to the various local churches he'd been involved with. So here he writes to the congregation in the town of Philippi. His letters contain some of the elements you'd find in one of his sermons. So we find him encouraging good things and discouraging bad things. His opening greeting was friendly and set the tone for the rest of the letter. When we looked at this together several weeks ago now, we were, we were also able to spot references to church government. So the typical church had deacons and elders and commonly one of those elders would be, uh, would be in the role of pastor. Paul went on in his letter to encourage growth in the Christian's growth. We are supposed to grow in a spiritual way. And Paul told them they should look to increase in love, knowledge and wisdom. And of course that's for us too. Paul then mentioned something quite remarkable. His being in jail didn't cause the Christians to be scared for themselves but made them more courageous. They'd previously been like most people in the church, even today. Most Christians are very nervous about sharing the faith. God himself only knows how our nation would be turned upside down if all of us had more courage in that respect. you remember that Paul was aware some people were preaching through bad motives. They wanted to make things harder for Paul. But Paul said he didn't care as long as the gospel was being preached. And then last time we looked at this very plain reality in Paul's mind. He wanted to depart this life and go and be with his saviour. Of course he did. But he knew he still had work to do. He said for everything he needs in this earthly warfare, he has Jesus Christ. And when he dies, it gets a whole lot better. Today I want to uh, spend a short while thinking about the humility of Christ. The humility of Christ. So it's my hope that in looking at the example of humility Jesus gave us, we pay attention to that quality in our own lives. So that after listening to God speak to us today through his word, we'd appreciate how great Jesus' humility was and we'd be that bit humbler ourselves. And there's, there's no better example, is there, of humility than that which has been given to us by Jesus Christ. So today, we'll look at Christ's humility in his coming to earth as a man. His humility during his life. And the great act of humility where he allowed himself to be treated as the worst of mankind in order to save his people. Hopefully, we'll be able to take something home from this that will make us more like him.
So firstly then, we'll look at his humility in his incarnation. You have a look at verses uh, 6 and 7 in the passage. It tells us Jesus was in the form of God and was equal to God. There he was, existing in a state of perfection within the heavenly Godhead. He enjoyed perfect fellowship with the Father and the Spirit. He received the adoration of angels and was feared by devils. He sat as creator of the universe and actively governed it by the very same power. And he left it all behind. He stepped down from the throne, placed his crown to one side and removed his royal robes. And in some incomprehensible way, he crossed into our world as a man. Verse 7 says that in doing this, Jesus emptied himself. What we are to understand by this is Jesus divested himself of that glory, but he did not discard his deity. He remained God. In the first chapter of John's Gospel, we see Jesus being described as the Word. It not only tells us this word was God, it describes the word as the one who came into this world and lived among us. Jesus Christ kept the essence of God, but he was fully human. And this, inc this incredible being of Jesus, he made the Christianity of the Old Testament a hundred times clearer. For some people though, this mystery couldn't be accepted. On the one hand, you had the Jews who refused to believe he was divine. And on the other hand, there were sects who refused to believe he was properly human. Now faith involves accepting it, accepting the truth while not fully understanding it. That's what we're to have, friends. He was human. Jesus came into this world, for example, as a helpless baby. And I promise you, if his mum had not fed him, he would have died. You can, you can even see his humble beginnings in the family he was born into. It was what today we would call a working class family. And they were from a deprived area. There were no posh houses in that little northern town. What a huge contrast from the glorious family of heaven to this poor family on a sin-filled earth. Truly humble beginnings. Secondly, we notice his humility in life. As soon as the baby Jesus became the toddler Jesus and grew up, his parents would have noticed an unusual level of obedience in the child. And they'd see it more as he got older. It says in Luke chapter 2 that he went down with his mum and dad and came to Nazareth, Nazareth and was 
submissive to them. Now look, all children know their parents are sometimes unreasonable. Sometimes children will question their parents' judgment. And whether the parents see it or not, children will frequently roll their eyes or mutter something under their breath because of something they've heard from the parents they thought was unfair or even stupid. Well, we can safely conclude the parents of Jesus were sinful. Joseph and Mary were not perfect parents. But even if they made a request of Jesus that wasn't entirely reasonable, his humble state would involve submitting to them. If Mary asked Jesus to do some job around the house, he'd listen carefully and then say, okay, mum, and go and do it immediately. When Jesus grew up, it was time for him to start his ministry proper, and this included baptism. So he went on a long hike, and he found John the Baptist. And he asked John if he could be baptised. Now remember, John was baptising people as part of their public repentance toward God. In other words, it was for sinful people. Jesus wasn't sinful. So John says, what? You should be baptising me, not the other way round. It was awkward for John. But Jesus told him to do it anyway. So he'd waited in line to be baptised with sinful people in front of him, sinful people in the queue behind him. Here was Jesus, humbling himself even to the extent of identifying himself as one of them, while himself being utterly sinless. You remember, no doubt, how awkward it was for Peter too when Jesus sat at his feet and began to wash them. We can all imagine, can't we, exactly how Peter felt. Yet yeah, this is how far uh, Jesus went to show the Christian life is a path of humility. We could then consider the humility of Jesus later on during his ministry. He was in a state of constant submission to his father. Have a look at uh, John 3. Uh, John 3 and verse 30. Uh, John 5, John 5 and verse 30. Jesus says, I can do nothing on my own. As I hear, I judge. And my judgment is just. That is right proper because I seek not my own will but the will of him who sent me obedient back in our passage have another look at verse 6 it said we mentioned equality equality with God was Jesus's by nature it was not something he needed to seize by force like in some military coup so we have here the son publicly confessing his submission to one he was 
by his very nature equal to how he humbled himself and if you're a believer today you can know that all this was done for you when Jesus' life on this earth was coming to an end we see his humility continued right up into his death even as he was verbally and physically abused his humility meant he didn't curse the people man was made in the image of God but sin deformed man into uh, deformed us into hideous creatures violent and greedy perverse in all our ways yet Jesus in his humility allowed himself to be ill-treated by such creatures well we've seen a humility in, in him coming into this world his humility during his life in this world and now thirdly, thirdly we look at his humility in his death his humility in death verse 8 verse 8 in our section tells us Jesus's humility extended to his death he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death so the obedience in dying was an act of humility this is taking humility to its most extreme this goes much further than living in poverty submitting to faulty parenting getting baptized among a sinful crowd of people and even getting on the ground and washing someone's filthy feet like a common slave jesus was to let himself be killed to enter the same grave as all mankind the eternal word of god the source of all life is placed lifeless in a tomb and so it was that in his fam famous uh, hymn, Charles Wesley expresses the struggle to consider that which makes no sense when he says, "'Tis mystery all, the immortal dies." These few verses from five to eight give us a glimpse into the very mind of Jesus Christ. It's saying, our thinking should be like Jesus is here. It's a sacred insight, this, into how Jesus thought. It's not often we, 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 we hear about this. In these thoughts, he knew, he knew he was part of the divine uh, trinity. But also in his thoughts, he was consciously humbling himself so that he might carry out his mission to save his people from their sins. Throughout the countless centuries of Israel's history, God was continually reinforcing the principle of atonement. In the system of animal sacrifice, the, the people were presented their whole lives with this image of their sins being transferred to an innocent animal. And then he came. The promised Messiah emerged onto the world scene. The whole system of animal sacrifice could now be dismantled 
The great Lamb of God was here. All of us who are God's people, friends, all those throughout history who've belonged to our chosen race of those born again by the Spirit of God, we have all, as it were, placed our hands on the head of the Lamb of God, had our sins transferred and watched as he was taken away for the slaughter. Matthew 20 says, The Son of Man came not to be saved, but to serve, and to give his life as a ransom for many. His death was itself an act of humility. Sinners only need to go to God humbly and beg their sins be taken away, and those that seek him with all their heart will find him, and they will discover that long ago, on an ancient hill, the Lamb of God took their sins upon him and paid the ultimate price for their deliverance. So there we have it. It's the state of humility. From his entrance into this world, as he grew up, in his ministry, and even unto his death, we see constant humility and as the story has progressed we have also seen that humility has deepened it's deepened well so now I want to have a look at those three elements of the example of Jesus's humility I want to speak about now about humility in his followers Humility in us. You sometimes hear me refer to what Paul is saying to us in this letter, or what Peter says in another letter. But we we believe those people, including Paul, they wrote under such special Holy Spirit guidance that we can also talk about what God is saying to us in this letter. So on that basis, we return to our passage. And God's word here teaches us firstly what we're not to be and then what we are to be. The negatives are given to us in verse 3. The selfish ambition, first of all. Now, we've come across this before. Remember those gospel preachers who were hoping to cause trouble for Paul? Well, he uses the same phrase to describe them. You turn back, you can have a quick read of it again in verse 17 of the previous chapter. So, we know this type of ambition can result in that sort of behaviour, but of course it's much bigger than that. Ambition can lead to all sorts of sinful paths. And it's by nature selfish. It applies to anyone who puts their own gain before everyone else's. It's existed in Paul's day, and I'm sure there's not a church in existence even today where it can't be found. There's a type of ambition which is good, ambition for Christ, but this is not it. This is selfish ambition. It also mentions here conceit. 
Now, in this part of the world, when we refer to someone as conceited, it, it tends to mean that they, they love themselves, always looking in the mirror. <laughs> but that's not the sense here. This is describing someone who boasts about themselves or their achievements, but in reality have nothing to be proud of. The old Bibles called it vainglory. Vainglory. I'm going to assume everyone here today surpasses me in all things spiritual. I'm going to assume you pray more than me, read your Bibles more than me, evangelize more than me, and enjoy a closer walk with God than me. And yet, you mustn't boast about any of it. To take pride in any of those things is to suffer from vain conceit. Boast away, but make sure you're boasting about Christ, what he's done through you. The only reason you're better than me in all those things is because of him, his grace, his enabling, his cleansing of your words and activities to make them acceptable to God. These behaviours, is pursuing your own benefit, even if you have to sin to get it, and stupid boasting are the very opposite of Christ-like humility. So what are we to be like? Paul's uh, telling the believers how they can complete his happiness. If they follow his guidance on this, it'll be the icing on the cake of his joy. <laughs> He's in jail, friends. He's in jail. Yet he doesn't spend a minute feeling sorry for himself. If he can, if he can only see some improvement in the behaviour of the church, he'll be so happy. What he wants to see is unity. He wants to see unity. Verse 2 says he wants them to think the same. Obviously, thinking in a godly way. He wants them to really love each other. He wants them to be so like Christ that they're constantly agreeing with each other. He emphasises he wants them all to be on the same page. You see in the first verse, he gives a small list of reasons why they want to pursue these good attitudes. It begins with if. If these things are true. Now, don't misunderstand, friends. He's not thinking, I wonder if these things are true. It might help if you read each one like this. If there is an encouragement in Christ, and there is, then so on. Or, if there is any participation in the Spirit, and there is, then do such and such. So he gives some good reasons why the Philippians and us should pursue these godly objectives. We have the encouragement of Jesus Christ himself. Through both his teaching and his example, he encourages us towards unity with each other. There's the incentive of the great comfort which comes from loving the brethren, putting them first. There's our partaking of the Holy Spirit, who influences us in this direction. 
And he's hopeful that the qualities of affection and sympathy or affectionate sympathy are already present in the hearts and minds of the brethren. So that by the grace of God, all the conditions are right for this selfless attitude to prevail among them all. <clears throat> I said that Paul wanted unity among the brethren, but how specifically did he want them to act? What are the opposites of selfish ambition and foolish boasting? Verse 3 directs them and us to have such a degree of humility that we count other people in the church as more significant than ourselves. Brethren, you're to treat the rest of the people in this room as more important than yourself. Here's an example. Not a great one, but let's say Anne uh, turns up today and she's bought each one of us a cake as a surprise for, for us to have after our meeting. And I do a quick head count and discover there's one cake short. Well, putting other people first means I have to make sure everyone else has a cake and not me. Not only am I supposed to do without but if it's done in a Christ-like way, I'm to be happy while you all sit there enjoying your cakes. The selfish person Paul warns about would say to themselves, or rather the selfish attitude that is, to be honest, present in all of us, uh, they would say to themselves, I'd better grab a cake quick before they all go. But that's the opposite of Christian humility. Christian humility is putting other people first. We, we only see each other once, twice, maybe three times a week. We all uh, have different levels of commitments. Now, if you attend all the meetings, our time together is still a very small fraction of the week. And so, if someone has difficulty in the company of someone else in the church, it's not so hard to muster the patience to get along with each other for those few hours. When you live with somebody, that can very, very quickly deplete your resources of patience. If you're married and your spouse is annoying the life out of you, you don't have the option to think of your, to, to, to think to yourself, you know, just, oh, just, just one more hour with this person and I won't have to see them for a few days. You have to get on with each other every day. The principle Paul urges on the believers is then especially useful in the home. If we understand the humility of Christ at all, we'll see we're supposed to always put the interests of our spouse before our own. We're supposed to always put the interests of our siblings before our own. Put the interests of our parents, our children, before our own. Now friends, I'm not claiming I've always done this in my family, or, or even that it's possible 
for sinful people to achieve this level of self-sacrifice. But I imagine if every married person in the land at least tried to put this into practice, we'd see very few marriage breakups. We, um, we read in verse uh, 4, we're to look to see how we can meet other people's needs as well as our own. So, we do need to see to our own business as well. We're not meant to neglect proper responsibilities so we can run round after everyone else. The point is we're not meant to restrict our care to ourselves and our own families. As you, as you try to have the humility of Christ, you can think of this as trying to outdo each other. If someone sees some good in you, try to see even more good in them. Try to, try to uh, search out deep-rooted sins in yourself more than other people do in themselves. Try to help others more than they help you. <laughs> now, you might think to yourself, this isn't going to work. Um, it's a bit like the nuclear arms race. You, you had uh, NATO on one side and the Soviet Union on the other, and they were, you know, each one would look at the other and say, "What? Well, they've got more nuclear bombs than us. We need to, uh, we need to increase the number we've got." And then the, the other side says, "They've got more than us now. We need to get more." And so. They were constantly overtaking each other in the number of weapons they had. And, and the day came when someone obviously said to, to the other side, you know, this is a bit stupid. <laughs> this is spiralling out of control. There's going to be no end to this. In Romans chapter 12, Paul urges the brethren to outdo one another in showing honour to the brethren. That obviously applies to uh, other kindnesses. In, in a sense, it's meant to be like an arms race, with everyone trying to overtake each other. But in doing this, they don't risk spiralling out of control, but are instead spiralling upwards to Christ-likeness. To, to emphasise what Paul says, I'll add to his point. You should treat the other people in church with the honour you'd show Jesus if he came to our meeting today. The Lord himself said as much. He says, if you serve others in the church, you're in a way serving him. So if you ignore someone in the church or you gossip about them, it's a direct snub to Jesus himself. That phrase, uh, that phrase in the first verse of our chapter reminds us of something. It has a slight likeness to one of the benedictions we use. Quoting 2 Corinthians, we say, the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ the love of God, the fellowship of the Holy Spirit be with you all. So in that, love is associated with God the Father. 
And in verse 1 of our reading, we see mention of firstly Christ, secondly love, which we might assume refers to in particular the love of God the Father. And then thirdly, we have the Holy Spirit. We have Jesus, we have, uh, we have the Son, we have the Father, we have the Holy Spirit. It's a faint reminder of the Trinity. And I believe that when the Holy Spirit comes to live in someone's heart, he instills in them a hint of that communion enjoyed within the Godhead. The perfection of the triune relationship it may be infinitely superior to anything we can experience now, but that perfection is what we must aim for. Today, the job of preaching the unsearchable riches of Christ to you is mine. And in so much as I'm sincere, I share the, I share the other Paul's desire. You people bless my soul. And the icing on the cake for me would be to see you grow in love and unity, serving others to the extent you put their interests before your own. To see such a thing wouldn't only be a blessing to me, but it, it would be a great testimony to those outside the kingdom of God. If each of us were to display the type of humility presented to us in the example of Jesus, the world would marvel. And they'd approach you and ask you how these things can be. And you can tell them about the one who you try to model yourself on, the Lord Jesus Christ. And if they are sincerely looking for the Saviour, you can share with them his own words when he said, Take my yoke upon you and learn from me for I am gentle and lowly in heart and you will find rest for your souls. Amen.